0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper.
1: And I'm Mary Matte. Hey, everybody. Usefulidiotspodcast.com is our website. And Katie, I heard there was a really successful and great event in New York City this week that you did.
0: There was, yeah. I was with, uh, at a live show at the People's Forum with Ronnie Kallick and Abby Martin and Claudia De La Cruz. Uh, it was a great discussion. You can find it at, uh, if you missed it live, you can find it at youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. It was a great time. Sold out. We sold out. Wow. Yeah. And we gave proceeds from the set ticket sales to um, We Are Not Numbers, which is a mentorship program co-founded by the late Rafat Alarir, who was killed by Israel in in a targeted assassination.
1: All right, let's get to our four basic food groups. I have Democrats suck. And for Democrats suck, we're going to turn to someone who it's easy to forget about because she only pops in for a public appearance occasionally. And that's Kamala Harris, the Vice President of the United States. Here she is on The View, talking about, first of all, two really important things. Her connection to young people, because as we all know, Katie, Kamala Harris is basically like the voice of the youth right now in America. Mm -hmm. And second of all, Israel's right to defend itself, which Kamala is very passionate about.
2: Of course. Um, Many say that one of your many strengths as a surrogate is
1: your connection to young people. Mm -hmm.
0: Who says that? Many, Aaron, many. <laughs> who says
1: who says that she has a connection to young people? I've never heard that before. Like, did I miss that talking point? Is that a thing?
0: I don't. Yeah, I've never even heard it's a thing. Honestly, I mean, she's younger than Biden, so there's that.
1: Yes, your connection to people younger than the age of 81
0: is being closer in age to them.
1: Yeah, right. I believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. Now, wow, voters honey, between 18 old. and
0: 29 years old stand out as disapproving
2: of the way the biden administration is handling the israel hamas war um they do not
0: how can anyone honestly call it israel hamas as if it's the country of israel the government of israel versus just hamas and not palestine and palestinians and gazans Yes, at least gazans at least gaza at least call it israel versus gaza
1: yes all those hamas tanks and airplanes uh, striking tel aviv You know, and Israel is just trying to defend itself uh, as if this is a war of two equal sides. It's, uh, yeah, it's a massacre. That's what this is. It's not a war. It's a massacre.
2: ...support sending weapons and money to Israel. They are advocating for a humanitarian ceasefire. Um, How does the administration respond to the concerns of this very important part of the Democratic voter base? So let's start with this. And you're right, Sonny. In fact, uh, in the fall, I embarked on what I called a a college tour Mm -hmm. and met with over
1: What a clever name uh, for her tour, a college tour.
0: It shows how connected she is to the youth.
1: Yes, yes. Only someone with the pulse of the youth could come up with such a clever use of language like that. What I call a college tour. Yes.
0: Yeah, what I like to call a, a college tour, yeah.
2: 15,000 students um, across the country, Um, I I just have to say I love Gen Z, by the way. I I think it's a spectacular generation. But all of that to say, you're absolutely right. I have talked with young people, many around the country, and I've heard them, I see them, and I understand. I understand. Um, But I think it's important that while we understand where they're coming from which i do that we not lose sight of the context which is let's just go back to october 7th we can't deny the significance of a vicious brutal attack that caused the death of 1200 innocent people a lot of them young people who are just attending a concert yeah women who were brutally assaulted and raped and again, as someone who spent a lot of my career focused on those kinds of crimes, the horror of it. Mm -hmm. And all of that to also then say Israel has a right to defend itself. We would and how it does matters. There have been far too many innocent Palestinians that have been killed. The president and I and many members of our administration have been very clear. I've been on over, I think, 14, 15 calls that the president has had with Bibi Netanyahu about what Israel must do to protect innocent civilians. Um, We all want this to end as soon as possible. And how (laughs) it ends matters.
0: Wow.
1: How it ends matters. It's interesting. So when Palestinians try to provide context for October 7th, uh, and the context specifically is the decades of occupation and ethnic cleansing that preceded it, they're accused of being Hamas supporters or justifying killing civilians. But Kamala, in trying to contextualize the slaughter of more than, at this point, 24,000 Palestinians, uh, can just point to October 7th. And that's supposed to automatically justify everything that Israel does after October 7th. And by the way, she says she references Hamas raping people. Uh, That's a claim that's been made by Israel. Israel's refused to cooperate with the UN investigation of that. There is no forensic or physical evidence. And the purported witnesses, which are the only source for these claims, have been very contradictory and told demonstrably false tales. Uh, And I'm not afraid to say that because it's just so easily proven. We, we've we done that at the Gray Zone. So is Electronic Intifada and Mondo Weiss. So that is not something you can say as uh, established fact. It's a claim it, is, it should be investigated, but it has not been proven at all. And in fact, uh, there are ample reasons to challenge it. But you can see there how tortured she is and trying to come up with a justification for her policy, which is supporting mass murder. And she's not very good at it.
0: No. Uh, but you know, she does it in such a useful way, Aaron. She does in a way that really reminds you of how connected she is with the youth.
1: Well, she loves Gen Z. I'm sure the young
0: people, I'm sure the Gen Z people who saw that, uh, who had reservations about Biden are now going to not only vote themselves, but help get out the vote.
1: Yeah. I do love the part where she took the moment to just really show how much she loves Gen Z. Like, I don't recall anyone ever doing that for Generation X. True. Or Generation Y or millennials. Millennials. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In fact, Biden said explicitly he had no empathy for millennials.
1: There we go. There yeah. we go. That
0: was a great moment. Yeah.
1: Well, on our next college tour.
0: Well, we're Kamala, calling a college co- tour. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Her next college, she'll be, she'll be, there'll be just massive crowds of millennials and, uh, and other generations demanding that they show, that Kamala show them love the way she showed love to Generation right. Z because people, like the youth just love Kamala and just want her approval.
0: Yeah. She set a dangerous precedent. Yeah. She's going to have to dole out a lot of love,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: even more than she already has. Yeah. Wow. Well, speaking of terrible takes on Palestine, from My Republican Suck, let's take a look at what Nikki Haley had to say about Palestinians.
2: You know, they should be going through the Rafah gate and Egypt take them. But I've always said that, you know, what you should have is they should go to pro-Hamas countries, Qatar, Iran. You know, if you send them there, Turkey, those are pro-Hamas countries. That's where they should go. But they're on the run for their lives, taking whatever they can, their kids in tow. They're not able to get into Egypt. How are you supposed to even make it to Qatar at this point? In that telling that Egypt won't. In that, in that telling take them? Why won't Egypt take them? Because they don't trust which ones are terrorists and which ones aren't. It's a sad state of affairs. But the reality of that evil is very clear in Arab countries too. Arab countries have very much always been cautious and know the threats that Iran can place.
0: So she's suggesting something that, as her interviewer points out, is actually like logistically and physically impossible, given that they can't even get into Egypt. But instead of pivoting, um, modifying what she's saying, acknowledging that it's complicated by that information, she just pivots to saying how much that proves how evil the Palestinians are, that even Egypt, even other Arab countries won't take them in, which is a favorite talking point.
1: I mean, it's such insane racism, the premise that they should go somewhere else just because these are arab countries. Right. It's so it's it's so racist but also to answer her question why won't egypt take in palestinians well there there's two main reasons. The first is why should egypt accept israel's ethnic cleansing? Like right. why should egypt be uh, absorb the consequences of israel's decision to ethnically cleanse palestinian land? Um and the other reason is i mean to the extent that, Israel, that Egypt has cooperated with the U.S. and Israel, that's because Egypt is a client state of right. the U.S. Now they get billions of dollars in uh, military aid. They're totally reliant on the U.S. and they've partnered with Israel uh, because they don't like Hamas. And so that's why. So Egypt is totally it's it's Egypt's totally in the pocket of the U.S. and Israel. But also, even if that weren't true, there's like a principle here. It's just like why should other countries accept? Israel's intention to ethnically cleanse Palestinian land. They don't want to right. be accessories to that.
0: It's disgusting. I can't believe she I mean I I can't believe she's saying this. It's actually very on brand for her.
1: For isn't that weird? Let's look at how Israeli spokesperson Elon Levy, who of course is not even born in Israel, he's from, I think, the UK. Most of these Israeli spokespeople are not even born in Israel. But here he is speaking to Channel Four News. And when the anchor tries to remind him that israel's occupying palestinian land watch how elon levy responds he basically responds by threatening this anchor
3: occasional misdemeanors we're talking about more than 23 24,000 people killed krishnan the, that, the civilian casualties that's an extraordinary number of civilian casualties and it's tragic and it's tragic krishnan it everyone who has
4: been killed since october 7th would still be alive if hamas had not declared war if Hamas were not fighting this
3: war from densely populated areas, and no one else would be hurt yes, but this if didn't Hamas start on october other thing their terms did it? You're right, this You other know, you is that you other you is that you other thing is happened. Had october the would thing not happened they would say october the other thing happened that the not thing happened. that the not thing is that the
4: other thing not that the other thing is that
3: the
1: other thing is that the other thing is that
3: the other thing is that the other thing is that the other thing is no,
1: Anchor, you actually are contextualizing, and it's fair to do yeah, that. Yeah, that that's because what you do. Because that, that, this Israeli spokesperson was just trying to contextualize, quote-unquote, the atrocities since October 7th right. by invoking October 7th. It was totally fair to invoke all the Israeli atrocities before October 7th uh, that resulted from Israel's occupation, which is what this anchor did. And what is the Israeli government spokesperson's response? It's to threaten the anchor. I'd be very wary. I'd be very wary if I were you of trying to mention the fact that we're an occupying power." That's his response.
0: Yeah. It's so, um, I don't even know what to say at this point. It's just the double standards uh, in terms of who's allowed to create context and provide context and who's not allowed to is just stunning. And the idea that history starts on October 7th is so ahistorical.
1: But Katie, Israel does have the right to defend itself from context.
0: Yeah, you're right. And context is actually anti-Semitic.
1: There we go. So yeah, it's a hate
0: crime. It's even threatening crime. threatening
1: news anchors, totally fair. Yeah. Totally, totally fair. Yeah. That's legit self-defense.
0: What an, the an overt, they're so entitled and they're uh, coddled that they're just comfortable being total bullies. 100%, 100%. So disgusting, yeah. This
2: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot,
0: democracy is really on the line and it's so on the line that he's willing to risk people's, uh, lives. Let's take a look.
4: So if you want to save America from crooked Joe Biden, you must go caucus tomorrow. The first step, the first step, we're going to do it. We're going to do it big. You got to get out. You can't sit home. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it.
0: So guys, you know, Democracy is on the line. It's literally a question of life and death, not just for democracy, but for voters. And for, for Trump, he wants you to it, to die. Like, it's okay. You, if, if you, if you, if you uh, breathe your last breath, pulling that lever, punching the screen, however you vote, it'll have been worth it.
1: Yeah. I mean, his critics on MSNBC and CNN always talk about how he's trying to end democracy. I mean, I see a guy there who's so passionate about democracy that he's willing to encourage death for it. You know, what could be more what could Yeah, exactly. I mean, how much more can you be committed to democracy than by instructing your voters to die for it? That's, you know, very rousing from Trump.
0: And those are your four basic food groups. We're really excited to be bringing on to the show. Andrew Feinstein. He is a former ANC member of Parliament of South Africa. He is the author of The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade, which has also been turned into a film. He's also the author of After the Party. And he's going to talk to us as a South African, as and also as the son of Holocaust survivor. He's going to talk to us about South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice and lots more. And the ANC is, of course, uh, Nelson Mandela's political party of South Africa, and as we'll hear, Andrew actually worked with Nelson Mandela. So without any further ado, Andrew Feinstein. Andrew Feinstein, thank you so much for joining.
4: Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Could you start off by telling us about your own life, your biography, um, how your kind of personal experience shaped your politics?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So. I'm South African, as most people can probably hear from my accent. Um, I'm now based in London, but grew up largely in South Africa and occasionally in Vienna, Austria, where my mother was from. And my mom was actually a Holocaust survivor. She survived the war in Vienna itself, one of not many Jews to do so. She was hidden in a coal cellar for three and a half years. And whenever the Gestapo or the SS were in the area, which was a working class district of Vienna, She was rolled up into a carpet, and the carpet was pushed up against the wall in case they managed to come in. Um, She and my dad, who is South African, met in London, went back to South Africa together. From a very young age, my mom would explain to me what her life experiences had been. It's what motivated her to get involved in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, um, and especially the fact that for her, you know, never again coined in the aftermath of the Holocaust wasn't about never again just for Jews. It was about never again for everybody. So we found ourselves in a similar struggle in South Africa, obviously. And I got involved in the struggle at a very young age. I started working in the townships and squatter settlements around Cape Town where I grew up and was eventually recruited into the ANC when it was still a banned and illegal organization. That's the African National Congress of Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tambo and various others. Um, had to leave the country very suddenly in the mid-1980s to avoid serving in the apartheid military, but was able to go back a few years later um, once the ANC had been unbanned and the first political prisoners released. I worked as a facilitator in the constitutional negotiations that led to our first democratic elections in '94, and in those elections I was a candidate for parliament for the ANC. I served in parliament for seven and a half years, including the whole of Mandela's term, um, which was quite an experience. Not so much after he retired, had a big falling out with his successor who decided to spend $10 billion on weapons that the country had absolutely no need of and have barely used until today. About $350 million of bribes were paid. So the ANC forced me out of parliament the night before they were due to get rid of me in Parliament because we have a pure PR system, I resigned. I wrote my first book, something called After the Party, on my experiences in South Africa, trying to investigate this arms deal, and was surprised by the reaction to the book. I got people contacting me from all over the world who were saying, oh my goodness, no one writes on the arms trade, and providing me with information, asking me to work with them on cases, a lot of prosecutors, a lot of whistleblowers, sources, And so did a book called The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade. That was the first book on the global arms trade written since 1979. And it came out the first edition in about late 2011. It's now in its 10th or 11th edition. It was made into an award-winning documentary film made by Belgian director, Johan Grimamprez, who I worked with very closely on it, also just called Shadow World. And since then have really been an activist and a campaigner on the arms trade, anti-militarism, anti-racism and have an organization in London called Shadow World Investigations. We do deep investigative work into corruption, what we call state capture and into the arms trade and the way in which it affects not just how we live and die, but also how we are governed.
0: And what is the significance of South Africa bringing the genocide case against Israel, the fact that it the country to do this is South Africa. Can you talk about the context and sure. the significance of this?
4: I mean, I think it's hugely significant for a number of reasons. Um, South Africa is obviously a, com- a country that lived under a racist apartheid oligarchy for over 350 years and struggled and won liberation from that racist system. And there are not many countries that can say that in the world. So it's a country that has, I would argue, a, a moral platform from which to talk about issues of racism, brutality, crimes against humanity, genocide, etc. So that's the first obvious symbolic importance. Second, it's really important to be aware of the fact that the South African struggle for liberation was always seen as as what we would describe in those days as a fraternal struggle with a Palestinian struggle for liberation. They were incredibly closely linked. The ANC and the PLO, particularly in, in the days of Yassir Arafat, who I met, he was one of the first foreign leaders to come and address our parliament in South Africa. Very, very close relationships and interlocking struggles in many ways. And it's a struggle that, you know, we shouldn't forget. When Nelson Mandela emerged after 27 years of imprisonment, he didn't sort of dance and shout and say, yay, I'm free. But instead he said, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinian people.
2: Surprised have you you been about the furor that your remarks about uh, the Palestinians and that whole situation, Cuba and and the the flap that has prece- uh, followed in the wake of those remarks. has that been a surprise to you at all? I was or? more
3: astonished than surprised. <laughs> you must remember that uh, when in 1960 uh, leaders like Oliver Tambo, and the young man sitting at the back there, Tabumbegi, went out of the country. One of the first steps that they took was to visit the West and to ask for assistance. In the course of that visit, they came to the United States of America and asked for help. They did not get that help. They went to Cuba, and the Cuba on the spot pledged support, and actually gave it long before the West could do anything to assist us. I am surprised that anybody should now expect us to condemn Cuba, to condemn the PLO, which has been working with us right from the beginning and helping us in our problems. It is totally unrealistic. It is a typical attitude of uh, countries which really do not approach uh, the problem of South Africa from the point of view of the liberation struggle in South Africa, which approach these problems from the point of view of their own interest. What that view wants is that uh, the African National Congress and the liberation movement in South Africa should be used for the purpose of uh, conducting vendettas, enemies of the West, We must join that vendetta in order to advance the interests of the West. That we will not do.
4: So the struggle of the Palestinian people is really at the forefront and remains at the forefront of South African politics. And I think therein again lies enormous significance. But then there is a slightly darker side that I think made it relevant too. And that is that Israel and apartheid South Africa had an incredibly close relationship. They were both pariah states. um, And, you know, it's extraordinary. I experience a sense of deja vu at the moment when I hear Israeli spokespeople talk about the United Nations and the international rule of law. It reminds me almost to the word of how our leaders in apartheid South Africa would rubbish the external world and particularly organizations like the UN that had imposed sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. And Israel, really assisted South Africa um, to remain a brutal apartheid state in that they provided huge amounts of weaponry to the apartheid state, significant amounts of military training in the horrific techniques that that they had used, and obviously continue to use in the occupied territories. But most important of all, um, enabled South Africa to become a nuclear power. And I remember quite viscerally, Sitting with my mother, I was 12 years old, and television had only very recently come to South Africa because it was seen as a sort of corrupting influence on our pure Christian state that happened to be extremely racist. Um, Seeing our prime minister, who at the time was a guy called B.J. Foster, who had been a most brutal justice minister for many years. I mean, a, a person very engaged in the struggle who he had ordered the police to, to arrest was thrown out of the 10th floor window of police headquarters in central Johannesburg on Foster's direct instructions. And there were these TV pictures of Foster, who during the Second World War had led a Nazi supporting militia called the Osservaer Brandwach and had been interned because of that in what was called a concentration camp. Seeing him representing apartheid South Africa as a neo-Nazi, not only arriving in Israel and being given full state honours, but paying his respects to the victims of the Holocaust at Yad Vashem, when he was an unreconstructed Nazi himself. And that was the trip on which him and Shimon Peres, who was then the Israeli Prime Minister, did the deal that enabled them both to become nuclear powers. So the history is very closely intertwined. And I think all of those reasons give enormous importance and symbolism to South Africa, having made that what I thought I must say was an exceptional submission in its detail, in its legal argument, in its impact and its force. But also, finally, you know, the fact that we had representatives of all aspects of south african society a society that had been so racially divided on the basis of legislation for so long and those who had been previously oppressed are now the top lawyers the judges etc etc appearing before the highest international court that only looks at the crime of crimes which i think says something about you know despite the insane fears of white South Africa in the last years of the apartheid regime that just represents the fact that a racially divided state can live harmoniously together. And it doesn't mean the eradication of the minority people in that area. And I think that is also pointing a direction forward for Israel-Palestine that I think is very important
1: what did you think of the Israeli uh, team's defense at the genocide hearing, where they tried to argue that South Africa is an ally of Hamas and therefore is not credible?
4: Well, first of all, it would have been great if they could have got their pages organized in numerical order, that would have been a start. I've lost a page. Some has shuffled my papers. Well, wow. I mean, I thought, quite frankly, I found it quite difficult to sit through because the depth of the lies and the deceit, the paucity of any legal argument, the truly pathetic nature of the attempt to justify what Israel is doing in Gaza was both shameful and shameless. And, you know, to try and brand South Africa as an ally of Hamas, as some sort of arm of the Iranian state, was embarrassing in the extreme when one actually looks at the real history. So first of all, South Africa, which I'm not at all proud of, the ANC, and so, you know, our our post-apartheid government has had very close relationships with Saudi Arabia who are Iran's most implacable enemy in the region. So the absurdity just from that perspective, which doesn't mean that South Africa has bad relations with Iran, it has sort of normal relations with Iran, like like most other states of the global south. Um, But it has far better relations with Saudi Arabia than it has with Iran. And this goes completely over the head of, of sort of Israeli propagandists, first of all. Second of all, You know, South Africa has never had any formal relationship with Hamas, that yes, as I mentioned, the ANC has had a long standing formal relationship with the Palestine Liberation Organization. But as anybody who knows anything about the situation in, in Palestine would know that the PLO and Hamas are certainly not the same entity by any means. But even if South Africa did have some relationship with Hamas, that's still in absolutely no way justifies the atrocities that have been committed against the civilian population in Gaza. So it was a completely vacuous argument at all possible levels. But the thing that struck me most of all, and this is by comparison to the previous day when South Africa made its submission, is that it was completely evidence free. So, you know, these claims about South Africa's relationship with Hamas and Iran, they didn't present any indication or evidence of how they had come to that conclusion. And the reason for that is that there isn't any, but the sort of propaganda line that has come out of Israel and that we see um, amongst sort of more conservative elements in the Jewish community in South Africa and elsewhere around the world, are just repeating this complete nonsense that has no basis in fact. And unfortunately, again, this just gave me a sense of the last days of the apartheid South African regime, where all it could do without a shred of evidence was to cast aspersions on those who were opposed to it because they believed in things like equality and justice and the international rule of law
0: and going back to the comparison between South Africa and um, Palestine uh, or apartheid I guess I should say in those two systems how did they how did they compare
4: well it's really interesting because you know people far more learned and far more experienced and and far more eloquent than me, like my former boss Nelson Mandela and my former friend, and in many ways a mentor of mine, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Sadly, neither of whom are with us anymore. I mean, they were both, you know, unstinting in their descriptions of Israel as an apartheid state. And the Archbishop went far further and described the fact that Israel was a far more brutal apartheid state than South Africa had ever been. And you know, these are two people who experienced the very worst that the apartheid state had to throw at them. And so for them to make that sort of statement and the primary reason, I mean, the archbishop after his, his um, first visit to the occupied territories was actually in floods of tears as he described why he thought the situation was so much worse. You know, in our so-called Bantustans or homelands, which are sometimes compared to the occupied territories, little tiny bits of land that were given to the majority of South Africans, the, the black African majority, where they were all supposed to live, where there were no economic prospects. But you could move freely into and out of those Bantustans. You know, nothing like the dehumanization of the checkpoints, um, not only between the occupied territories in Israel, but even between parts of the occupied territory. So to move from one part of the West Bank to the other, you sometimes have to go through these checkpoints. He had never experienced dehumanization of that order where you had these young Israeli kids in uniforms and with submachine guns, treating Palestinians, including elder Palestinians, as worse than animals. And the fact that the Israeli apartheid system has separate roads, Israelis and Palestinians, separate car number plates, which is a degree of slightly psychopathic efficiency because it obviously makes Palestinians much easier targets. You know, we never had that level of sophistication or efficiency in our apartheid system in South Africa. But the primary difference that I think is so important is that apartheid South Africa depended very heavily on an incredibly cheap, ununionized labor force, because of course trade unions were banned in apartheid South Africa, largely. There was a period when they weren't, but largely. Depended on that workforce for the functioning of a natural resource reliant economy. So the jobs that white South Africans weren't prepared to do like going down into the very dangerous mines to mine out the gold and the diamonds and the other natural resources that gave us our wealth. Whereas in The situation of Israeli apartheid, they don't have that same dependence on the Palestinian population. And as a consequence, and it's terrifying even to verbalize this, it makes the Palestinian population in the eyes of Israel, the Israeli state, as expendable because there isn't that economic dependence. And we're seeing that, and we've seen that obviously for decades in the occupation, but we're perhaps seeing it in a starker way over the past two months than we ever have been before, where it seems as though this Israeli government, which is the most right-wing, proudly fascist Israeli government in the country's history, seems willing to slaughter an indefinite number of Palestinian civilians, which is something we never saw in apartheid South Africa. Of course, there were the atrocities at Sharpeville in 1960, where over 170 women were shot in cold blood because they were protesting against having to carry racist ID books. We had Soweto in 1976, where school children, over 300, were shot dead in cold blood because they weren't prepared to learn in the language of their oppressor, Afrikaans. And we had Patong in the late 1980s, where a hostel of ANC-aligned workers, during our transition period, were again slaughtered in their beds by what we called the Third Force, um, very sinister agents of the apartheid state, simply because they were ANC supporters. But there was never, there was never the same sort out and out assault and destruction of every aspect of Palestinian life, not only the people themselves, that for many of us, and Aaron's you know, probably in a better position to talk to this than me, that for many of us is, is, is how we define and identify
1: genocide. And uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about the political consequences of the government of South Africa doing this. I mean, they're not just standing up to Israel but they're standing up to the US government, the most powerful country in the world, which is the sponsor of Israel. And by implication, if you're accusing Israel of genocide, you're accusing the US of uh, sponsoring genocide because oh. this cannot happen without US military and diplomatic support. So can you talk about, you know, the courage it took here for South Africa to do this, especially because they're stepping up to defend a people, Palestinian, to have no political power at all. Nothing to offer South Africa in terms of a quid pro quo. I mean, this truly is a is a humanitarian intervention uh, at a great cost for South Africa. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Well, I say all hail South Africa. I wanted to go to the South African consulate. This past week, and kiss the ground outside, and I realized, you know, I'm still kissing the ground that's technically in the U.S. I, you know,
0: oh, can't do that. It,
1: it wouldn't, it there wouldn't be much point in that. But uh figuratively, I really wanted to kiss the ground of South Africa because I'm so grateful for what they did. And yeah, very cool to get Andrew's take on it.
0: Yeah, it definitely is, and you can follow him on Twitter. He's a great Twitter account at Andrew Feinstein. Highly recommend that. Yeah, maybe we can do a live show for them, the South African Embassy. A live taping of useful idiots.
1: We can serve uh, what do they eat in South Africa? Biltong? Um, no idea actually. Yeah.
0: Honestly, no idea. They have good wine. I know that.
1: Yes, they do, sure. Yes. They make
0: great wine, yeah. Yes,
1: yes. Well, everybody book your next vacation uh in South Africa and if you can't make it, you know, at least buy some South African Biltong or wine yeah. or whatever other treats you fancy because Wow. What a service they did for humanity by yeah. taking Israel and it's us sponsored a court for genocide.
0: Right. And make sure you go to useful idiots podcast.com.
1: That's where you can support the show and get all kinds of bonus content. We really appreciate your support.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. And we will see you next week. Bye everybody. Bye.
1: Thanks so much for listening to and watching useful idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.